Good morning. Good morning. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. I am so pleased to be able to say good morning. This is another day on this side of the earth. And with each breath and each day that I am given, I look forward to informing and empowering and making into activists, if possible, in any small or large way, the wonderful listeners who also have been blessed with another day of life. But life means being able to live with quality of life. Quality of life means shelter. I've written two books, well, several, but two I want to focus on. One is the Voting Rights War. And the Voting Rights War um, just received an award. I'm so happy. The Voting Rights War. That's fine. That's well. That's good. Okay. Now put that on the shelf. My other book is Race, Law, and American Society. And in that book is a chapter on property. And I begin that chapter with shelter, that word, shelter. So as we shelter in place, as we figure out ways in which we can stay alive, by practicing social distancing. In order to shelter in place, we need shelter. And today we will have an expert with us talking about landlord-tenant issues. Landlord-tenant issues, and he is the expert in New York City. You know I, I reach for the best. And we're also going to talk about what's happening in other parts of the world. In this particular instance, it'll be France. And so, um, as you know, I travel to Paris and other parts of France on a fairly regular basis and other parts of the world as well. I try to get out of here because sometimes this place gets on my right nerve. So I've got to get up, get out, go other places where they're not using all of private, public and government resources to crush me and people who look like me. So sometimes I do have to get up out of here. And we're going to have a discussion, not just with her about international you know, uh, perspectives on the COVID-19, but also looking at um, what we will see going forward with other issues and discussions of issues. And to, yesterday was the birthday of Coretta Scott King, and we'll talk about that as well. But first, I want to hone in on something that's going on with our U.S. Supreme Court. And there were two major cases, I think, of great importance and interest to those who listen to this program, because we don't just talk about the law, we delve behind the law, and we're talking about the humanity behind the law. One of these cases, Ramos versus Louisiana. Now, some of you may or may not have known this, but most of us grew up with the fact that in a criminal case, or Sixth Amendment right in a criminal case, there had to be a majority jury that um, convicted a person. Well, in Louisiana, they didn't do this. And we talked about this a little bit. Maybe the Louisiana state laws allowed an, a non-unanimous jury to convict a person. And of course, this stems from the race-based notions that once black people began to finally fight their way onto juries, and that's why people who ignore their jury summonses are actually doing a disservice, because it's been a long time that people of color and women we're not allowed on juries if you just follow the law, and we'll get into that another show. And so here we have a time period in which people of color are finally getting onto juries, state juries, only to have the law change so that it's not a majority that convicts. It's not, it's, I mean, I'm not a unanimous majority, uh, 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 jury, but a majority. So you could have a 10 to this verdict 
where 10 of the of the 12 jurors vote to convict and that way it would marginalize those jurors of color so their vote wouldn't count and so finally the u.s supreme court decided last week that you had to have a unanimous jury and it was in louisiana and oregon where they did not have a unanimous jury um, law. So you did not have to have a unanimous jury to convict people. And of course, it was basically racially biased. And you, they went through and you could see the data showing how many people of color were the ones convicted under the skewed um, program they had come up with, basically race-based discrimination to require non-unanimous juries in order to convict people of color. Um, then we go on to another Supreme Court case I think is very important as well. And that is New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. This is a Second Amendment case, New York-based Second Amendment case. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus New York City. New York City has, if not the most, the probably in the top two, when it comes to stringent gun control laws. New York City does. So what about those people who are within the confines of New York City, and this is the argument that's being made as a Second Amendment violation, this, this charge against this New York City law, that someone who actually has gun rights in New York City, if they have a second home, say in Dutchess County, and they want to take their gun out of, their, of New York City and go to their second home, that this is a violation. And so they, but what New York City did while this case was going up to the U.S. Supreme Court, because under appellate review and requesting a writ of certiorari, which is the uh, request for the um, Supreme Court to review a case, under all of this, um, it took time. And during that time period, what happened was that New York City changed the law. And so by the time they reached the U.S. Supreme Court, New York City's law had been amended to allow this movement of weapons from one place to another. And then um, the argument was made, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. But what if we happen to stop somewhere? Because it's like, okay, you're allowed to take this weapon from point A directly to point B. And it was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if we stop at a restroom? What if we stop and, you know, at a McDonald's? You know, what, what about that? You know, that will then violate the law. But that's perspective. That's speculative. And so the Supreme Court sent the case back down to the lower court. Remand is what it's called. Back down to the lower court to see if this is an actual argument for relitigation, that they find someone who's actually been affected in this way and if they could make this argument. But in the meantime, that was that Second Amendment um, argument being made. And we know the Second Amendment is the um, amendment that says that people have a right to bear arms. But as we know with the First Amendment, with freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, we are not able to assemble right now because in the balance of public health, complete freedom of assembly is impossible. So there is no absolute right under the Constitution. No one has an absolute right to bear arms or an absolute right to have freedom of speech. We can't yell fire in a crowded theater once we crowd in theaters again. So there are always limits to these rights under the Constitution. There is no absolute right to anything except perhaps death and taxes. Who knows? But at the end of the day, just know that this um, Second Amendment case is down to the lower courts on remand, maybe coming back up. They're challenging these um, gun laws and gun protections. Um, what's interesting about this is that 
and looking at another legal issue, racial discrimination and social distancing, that we're finding that there is, of course, a difference in treatment. People in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, California, with loaded guns, you know, violating the social distancing um, requirements in their protests, not a police car in sight in many of these instances. And yet we have, you know, these cases, examples of people of color who are in some instances harassed by law enforcement. We've had parties that have been broken up, you know, people, you know, knocking in the door in California um, to, to bust up a birthday party for a one-year-old. You know, we have these things happening in private homes, but in the public view on international television, we see these people who are white, except for a sprinkling of people of color in there. We we see these people who are, are you know, violating this law, obviously violating the law, and nothing happens. These are the types these are the, the types of, of, of disparities that are so blatant that we see on a regular basis, we being the American people, see this on a regular basis in the 21st century. And we can imagine, just imagine, you can read my book, Race, Law, and American Society, if you want to have full details of laws put in place to undermine the progress of people of color. And at the same time, the um, the prosecution, failure to prosecute, the law enforcement, failure to enforce laws when it comes to other people. And so this disparity is something that's ongoing that we really need to keep an eye on and make sure as we go into deeply into the 21st century, that it's not something we relive as a tradition, de facto discrimination, that we discriminate against these people because we have, so we feel we can and therefore we will watch yourselves and make sure you're not falling into the trap of generations past, that there are certain bad things that should happen to certain people because that was happened to people in the past. But as I started off this show by saying landlord tenant will be a major issue we're talking about today. And we're going to do that. We're going to delve right in. We're going to have attorney Autry Johnson on the show and he's got it. He's got the information we need, and we'll be back right after this musical break on Law of the Land, WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. And during this break, please, first, for those people who haven't done so, please change your clothes. And secondly, become a BAI buddy. BAI buddy. In the name of Law of the Land, let them know that you're a listener here on this show. We'll be right back.
And we're on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, speaking about landlord-tenant issues in the time of a pandemic. Shelter, 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 that is what all of us must have. Any living being has to be sheltered, rooted in some place. And we need to know more about landlord-tenant issues in this time of the pandemic and beyond. So... Attorney Archery Johnson, a partner in A. Johnson Law Firm, criminal defense and civil rights. This, this man has done so much, and he's a captain in the U.S. Army Reserve. So captain, judge, advocate, lawyer, esteemed person in landlord-tenant law, welcome to Law of the Land. Well, thank you for having me. I really, really enjoy your show, and it's a pleasure to be here today. Well, thank you, sir. And um, I want to just delve right in because I know our listeners have so many questions. And unfortunately, in this particular show, we're not able under the construct we have um, to get listener calls. But I'm going to ask you even before you start to come back so that we will have an opportunity for listeners to call in. So we'll try to touch on those those questions and issues we believe our listeners will need to know. So let's let's jump in. Where are we when it comes to landlord-tenant during this time period of the pandemic? We're actually frozen at this time. The, um, I think around March 16th of this year, when the courts decided to close um, as a result of COVID-19, what the state did and what the courts ultimately did was suspend evictions. Now, for a lot of people, it was a misunderstanding as to what that meant. The suspension of evictions didn't necessarily mean that people weren't required to pay rent. What it ultimately meant was that your landlord couldn't evict you if you weren't paying rent, if there were any landlord and tenant cases that were currently pending against you. They couldn't move forward on those cases if you had entered into a stipulation in landlord-tenant court to either vacate your apartment or to pay rent. None of those stipulations were currently enforceable. Um, But what's happened since uh, March 16th is there's been a a Senate bill proposed in the state. It's Senate Bill 8125 sub A, and it's an act to suspend rent payments for certain residential tenants and small business commercial tenants and also to suspend certain mortgage payments for 90 days in response to uh, COVID-19. So as it stands, there is legislation pending in the state Senate to um, to suspend the rent payments and to go a little bit further and forgive those payments. We haven't had a actual concrete uh, decision or, or a vote, but I suspect that within the next couple of weeks that they will make a decision to either extend the suspension of eviction proceedings or, you know, move into outright forgiveness for for rent that goes unpaid for you know, the period that we're within the pandemic. Okay, I just wanted to keep a voice up, but um, here's the other thing. Uh, so let's look at the, those two sides. If we have tenants not paying rent, how is that affecting landlords? Well, right now, um, if tenants are not paying rent, Landlords can be affected in a few different ways. First and foremost, they may, they may not be paying their mortgages. Um, they may not be paying taxes that have come due quarterly. They may not be paying the water bill for the building. 
Now, if you have a landlord who doesn't have a mortgage, whose building is paid, then ultimately he's just not receiving that revenue. And again, he may not be paying taxes and water, but the bills that are pending, the legislation that's pending, you know, orders that I believe will come from the governor at some point in the near future, will probably contemplate some sort of forgiveness for landlords' mortgage payments. So I think that the, the city council, as well as the state, and as well as the federal government, are taking a very even keel approach to it, and they're attempting to make sure that they enact some legislation or enact some orders which take care of both sides of the equation. They're not just focused on um, the tenants, not just focused on the landlords, although because New York is a large renter's market, you know, the, the idea of people losing their homes and being displaced, I think has far greater concern. Well, then let's look at the home. What about, you know, those are bank mortgages. And we're talking about um, state law and some city um, legislative issues. What about people who are teetering on the brink of foreclosure? Well, right now, um, I don't think there's a mortgage company out there that's not um, instituted some sort of forbearance program uh, or forgiveness for just this period um, where individuals aren't required to pay their mortgage for up to 90 days. And what they'll do is those mortgage payments that have been missed will get added to the end of their amortized mortgage agreements. So they won't have to pay it until, you know, the end of whatever the mortgage amount was. So if they had a 20 year mortgage, an additional, you know, three months will be added on to the end of that mortgage. The mortgage companies have actually been, been really understanding and really proactive about reaching out to, uh, to individuals with mortgages and letting them know that if you're having trouble paying it as a result of the pandemic, because they're aware that, that tenants aren't paying, reach out to us and we'll try to work something out with you. Um, I don't know a single mortgage company that's not doing that right now. Well, that's if you can reach them. And I'll tell you my bank, um, which is TD bank. And I'm saying I'm calling out TD bank right now because I've been on hold sometimes up to two hours just trying to take care of a simple matter and my bank branches are closed. So I thought, yes, well, we have this small business loan and that they're talking about during the, the federal monies. And there are many people, and we're going to go into the small businesses next, um, who are trying to access their banks and can't get through. So it's, it's been very difficult. Then we find out, of course, people with $25 million or more in the bank are having those applications created for them by bank personnel. And that's how they jump the line for the little people. So let's talk about these these storefronts talk about some of these small businesses what about their landlords these yeah, commercial you're absolutely right the commercial businesses i think have it a lot harder um and that their landlords don't necessarily see this as a loss of of a residential tenancy or or potential homelessness their landlords are looking at it from a perspective of okay you have some place to live this is your commercial business you should have you know, ample stockpile of of, uh, of funds and assets to hold you over until 
the pandemic has has passed. But that that's just not the case for the average small business owner. The average small business owner, especially if he's just established his business in say the last five years, he's only reached a point now where he's profitable. You know, for the five years prior or since the inception of his business, he's been able to pay the mortgage with a little, you know, a little profit, you know, coming from whatever business, whatever kind of business entity is running, but it hasn't been a windfall. So he's not able to save, he or she, excuse me, is not able to save the equivalent of, you know, a month's rent every month as a surplus. Um, so I think that they have it a little bit more difficult. Now, having said that, all legislation proposed to this, proposed by the state, um, most federal legislation takes into account small businesses. I will say that the federal legislation, the last stimulus package, which did contemplate small businesses, had a serious loophole in the um, in the way it was drafted. In that, let's say an entity like Starbucks, which is a corporate-owned entity, and there are no franchises. The corporation owns all the entities. Each Starbucks has less than 50 employees. So each individual Starbucks was able to apply for oh a small goodness. business loan from a stimulus package. And businesses like that, which have 4,700 locations, essentially ate up all the stimulus money before the essential small businesses, the true small businesses, you know, your corner store, your neighborhood hardware store, your neighborhood barbershop, your neighborhood beauty salon, before those entities, uh, applications can be processed, the corporations who, and quite frankly, I agree with you, whom the banks cater to, took in their applications first and dispersed all that money. And what really troubles me is Shake Shack and so many of these, and we don't have a list of all of them. We have the ones that were actually called out because they were caught. Um, taking right. this money for small businesses. There are many, many others getting millions and millions of dollars. And when we think about this is our tax money, the money that you and I put into the pot and the rest of those regular people. Many of these corporations have figured out loopholes like Amazon to not even pay taxes. So this is our money, the little people's money. Now, once again, we're tricked out of our funds. We get, and I haven't gotten my check yet. I know other people, I've heard other people have. I haven't gotten a check or anything yet out of this, this little bit of money that I might get compared to the millions of dollars that these corporations are receiving, who, as you say, should have had some type of, of, of nest egg to call on during this. And yes, this is a horrible time. And yes, this has undermined a lot of businesses, large businesses as well. But my concern is now we have a second stimulus package, which is more of our little people tax money that finally gets to small businesses. And this is a crying shame because the other aspect of this is not just small business, but the nonprofits. And as I said, my bank branches were closed closed. And because the bank branches were closed, how am I to put in this application with a two hour wait um, for us to actually be able to talk to somebody at a bank? Um, I want to talk about um, predatory lenders and predatory buyers. I'm always seeing these signs where do you want to sell your house or, you know, or condo? Um, is this a time in which we need to make sure that we um, 
are protecting our small entities and our, our um, small businesses, our um, homeowners, elderly homeowners from predatory buyers? You know, in my experience, I don't think that this time is any different from any other time in terms of protecting, um, you know, residential homeowners from predatory lending, especially our seniors, because you have these predatory investors, and I won't even say lenders, these predatory investors who go door to door and, and they, they've staked out the neighborhood. They know exactly whose home they're going to go to. They know exactly who they're going to speak to. They're looking for that elderly person who they've seen leave the house once or twice. They haven't seen anybody else go in. They're going to go and they're going to offer that person a reverse, a reverse mortgage. Uh, or they're going to offer them some sort of extended mortgage plan without telling them that in the middle of that mortgage, there's going to be a balloon payment that they have no chance of, of satisfying, no chance of paying. And once that balloon payment has not been paid, they're going to foreclose on that person. And, and that balloon payment normally comes relatively early, you know, within that extended mortgage period. We're talking about, you know, a reverse, a reverse mortgage that, you know, maybe they're taking over the payments for you for a period of time, but there's going to be a, a month or two months within that time frame where, a $30,000 mortgage payment comes due, a $60,000 mortgage mm -hmm. payment comes due. And I just think that in this time where people are struggling just to make basic ends meet, even people who do own homes, who, who you know, who have a house with some equity, who have a property that has value, but they're still struggling to put food on the table and they're at their most vulnerable. You know, we have to be very vigilant about lenders about investors who are going to approach these folks and in attempt to get them to sign documents that they don't understand uh, tr transfer title to their to their uh, homes without them knowing it have them enter into mortgage agreements that they couldn't possibly satisfy so i think we definitely have to be vigilant and especially in a time where people are desperate and you, you have a lot of people out there right now who who are desperate and who are really fearful about tomorrow. They don't know when they're gonna get back to work. They don't know where their next dollar's coming from. You don't know where your next dollar's coming from. You don't know where your next meal's coming from. So it, it becomes really important that individuals stay vigilant, you know, for the, the elderly person in their neighborhood who owns a home, who maybe lives alone, that, you know, our um, local legislators um, stay vigilant, that our state legislators remain vigilant, that attorneys, remain vigilant for their clients. You know, this is a time where you should be calling to check on your clients um, and see what their needs are. And just to, just to reach out and just to let them know that you're there as a resource in the event that there are any issues, that somebody approaches them, that they can give you a call. And it's a call that they give to you isn't always about them commencing the case or about them paying you money, but it's about, you know, that relationship that you have with them, that fiduciary relationship. Um, so it, it is really, really important right now to stay vigilant. This is this is a this is a, a really, really, really important time in this country, and especially in this city, which is the center of the pandemic. We definitely have to, to remain vigilant for for things like that. Okay, and I'm I'm hearing some background noise there, but um, one thing I'd also like to ask, and two questions that I've I've heard people. Um, 
uh, actually tr they're troubled with whether or not they can use their security deposit as rent. Is this something that was suggested by Mary de Blasio that's actually something that um, a tenant can do? Or is, is this just uh, uh, now at this point um, an accepted um, practice that'll take place during the pandemic? What do you know about that? Well, in terms of security deposits, I mean, that issue hasn't, is not just relegated to the pandemic. That's kind of a general issue that you have in housing court pretty often. The use of a security deposit in lieu of your rent has to be something that's agreed upon by both parties. Your landlord, and tenant, have to agree, okay, I'll, I'll, lose, I'll use your security in lieu of last month's rent if you're moving out, or I'll use it in lieu of a month that you weren't able to pay because of some financial difficulty. But legally, security is not to be used as rent. Security is security on damage to the premises when you vacate. So really, the use of security as rent is, is wholly dependent upon you and your landlord, what you, what you both agree to. But is that for right. is that for the tenant um, who is the individual living in an apartment as well as a tenant who is a restaurant or small business owner? Absolutely, and when it's uh, and when it's small businesses, the security deposit is fairly substantial because small businesses tend to have buildouts when they enter a premises, and if a landlord ultimately re-rents when that person vacates, there may be a necessity to you know, completely reconstruct the premises. Although most commercial landlords have their tenants do their own build-outs, the security deposit really contemplates any substantial damage to the premises. But if there's no substantial damage, you're allowed to get your security deposit back, you know, less any normal wear and tear. But during this time period, would it be wise for a small business owner to actually use that security deposit as rent without negotiating with the, the landlord? I would say not to do that only because if you're, if it comes to a point where you have to vacate um, and there is damage, you could see yourself in civil court being sued for, you know, any damage to the premises that would have otherwise been covered by your security. But what I would say, just as, you know, kind of conversely, is right now we're in a very gray area in terms of the payment of rent anyway. You know, right now the payment of rent is not enforceable in the world. So to the extent that, say, there's like Senate Bill 8125A that's still pending in a legislature, rather than use your security, even contemplate, you know, giving your security over in lieu of rent, I think it'd be prudent for everybody, whether it's residential tenants, whether it's commercial tenants, to just wait and see. The longer that this pandemic continues, the more inclined I believe the state will be to institute rent forgiveness. So I think that, you know, as easy as it, as it is to say, I think the prudent thing right now would be to just wait and see. Don't use your security for anything. Just maintain the status quo and you know, let's wait and find out what the legislature and, you know, the city council and even the federal government ultimately decides or enacts, you know, regarding COVID-19 and, and residential and commercial tenants. Well, I know there's so many other questions and you'll have to come back, but I would like to 
um, have you just touch on how does one renegotiate their lease if they've been told they cannot go back into their business and therefore it's not by their fault that they're not able to um, access their business and make money then how do they renegotiate a lease? And and we've been told that now is the time, if you're looking to um, downsize and find another place, that this is the time to do that. So if one were to renegotiate a lease, do they just go to their landlord or, and say that given all this happened, we need to change these things? Because we've gone into this time period where rents had tripled, quadrupled. And so is now a good time to renegotiate that lease? Uh, well, you know, I think right now is a good time for any tenant, whether residential or commercial, to approach your landlord and say, you know, considering the circumstance that we're in, considering, you know, the, the direction that we're going in right now in terms of, you know, COVID-19 maybe extending this stay-at-home period, the shelter-in-place period, um, a little longer than had, it orig had originally been anticipated, because I think the court as well as the state was kind of operating on this 90-day window, which is, you know, set to expire soon, I would say have a conversation with your landlord. You know, if you if you have a lease in place, you know, you're 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 kind of okay. And what you're trying to negotiate is a way in which, you know, and this is provided there's no rent forgiveness, a way in which you can maybe push the rent payments that have been missed, you know, out further into your lease. Or maybe you can add a very small amount to your monthly rent once the city reopens. Um, but I think it's it's really important right now to at least have that conversation. And conversely, you know, landlords also should be having that conversation with their tenants, you know, with the understanding that it's a difficult time for everybody. And what's happening now is not because of the acts of your tenant. Your tenants haven't done anything to facilitate what's going on now, you know. And that you need to be understanding. You need to, to kind of find common ground. And it's probably best to find that common ground before the state does it for you. Um, but to the extent that leases are expiring residentially, that kind of gets us into two separate kinds of tenancies. You know, rent stabilized, rent control tenants, um, Mitchell Lama co-op tenants, uh, New York City Housing Authority tenants are pretty much okay in terms of their leases because their landlords are required to renew their leases. Um, and to the extent that they can't pay, you know, I think those entities are more likely to, to enter into agreements to give people extended times to pay or maybe institute some sort of forgiveness or what have you. For those individuals whose leases have, are expiring, whether it's commercial or residential, you really want to speak to your landlord in this in, about an extension of time to vacate, although you're going to get that anyway, because nobody can commence a case against you right now. In addition to an inability to evict anyone or, or you know, to move forward on evictions, landlords can't even commence cases right now. You can't go into the courthouse and file a case. So nobody's really in jeopardy of an eviction right now, but I know that, you know, most folks especially small business owners as well as residential tenants are thinking down the line when the city opens up and their landlord starts screaming, well, where's the money that you didn't pay during the pandemic? I need that money. I need that money. Or I'm 
not going to renew your lease if you don't pay that money. Um, I think the best bet, again, is to have that conversation. But I, can, I can't say have that conversation with your landlord without also saying, you know, be vigilant about what your legislators are doing. You know, you have to track these bills. You have to track these potential orders. Because again, if we move into rent forgiveness, then these are not going to necessarily be issues when you come back because you'll have rent forgiveness through a specific period. And then once that period expires, your rent will become due. And if I know the way the state legislature and the city council and the federal government, for that matter, are contemplating rent forgiveness, it's going to give businesses a, it's going to give businesses time to not only reopen, but to also get back to normal, which will take, you know, several months before, you know, everybody's back into the, you know, the what I call the rotation of business, you know, people back into their regular lives, uh, money moving throughout the city again, people frequenting restaurants, people frequenting bars, people going to their barbershops and their salons again regularly, people going to their local businesses again regularly. So, yeah, definitely have that conversation with your but don't feel pressured to enter into any agreement. Don't feel pressured to, you know, to start offering things that you know you might not be able to satisfy. Don't feel pressured to make agreements about the future payment of rent. Don't feel pressured to make agreements about your security deposit. Right now, we're at a standstill. And, you know, you use that time to kind of figure out where you're going to go from here with the knowledge that nothing's going to happen to you. Right now, your landlords can't do anything. Thank you so much, Attorney Autry Johnson, Captain Judge Advocate um, Autry Johnson, expert in landlord tenant. And if you would give that number, if people wanted to find out more information, do you have a number that you could give us? Sure. Um, I can be reached at area code 718-424-5851 or... 718-335-1702. So 718-424-5851, 718-424-5851 for more information on landlord-tenant issues. Thank you so much for joining us. And as I said, you will be back, I hope, and our listeners will be able to ask you very specific questions about their landlord-tenant issues. Thank you so much for joining us on Law of the Land. we had Red Garland, please send me someone to love. And that was Mary Lou Williams' Bag Blues. 
This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall on WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org, asking you to be my BAI buddy. I need some friends, someone to love. Please send me a BAI buddy to love, please, and support Law of the Land and all the wonderful programs here right on this station, WBAI. Um, that landlord-tenant program was exceptional, I will say, and I hope it answered some of your questions, and you will have an opportunity in the future to ask those questions of Attorney Autry Johnson yourself. But let's move on to my guest, and she has been waiting anxiously, and I wanted to speak with her. This is a guest, a journalist, uh, an American living abroad in Paris, and she's been living there for a while. We wanted not just discuss the pandemic seen from the French standpoint of what they're doing with their own social distancing, but also talk about this new initiative that she and I are entering into. Nita Wiggins, thank you so much for joining me. Yes. Hi, Gloria. So happy to connect with you. Well, we have a lot to talk about, and um, let's delve into Coretta Scott King. Well, well, absolutely. Her birthday uh, is yesterday, was yesterday. And she would have been 93 years old. And so for some people, she has just passed through history and has left some mark on history. But what I like to consider with her and your audience probably knows about that principle that says the fulfillment you get in your life. Well, it has to do 90 percent with the person you decide to marry. And, and I'm not talking about necessarily the person Coretta Scott decided to marry. I'm talking about the person that Martin Luther King decided to marry. Oh, yes. <laughs> that, that he decided that young Coretta was for him. Uh, she marked history because of things that she was doing that we didn't see. There was an, the invisible glove, I like to say. And in so many ways, she was a fierce person. She added some steeliness, not only to the movement, but to Dr. King. And, and I'm glad that we're going to talk about a few things. Well, here's what's so interesting. And this April 4th marked the assassination, the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., um, and it's also the month marking the birthday of his widow, Coretta Scott King. And Coretta Scott King, you know, went on to be a um, person who was known for literature. There's the Coretta Scott King Award given to children's books. And she went on to carry his legacy to make sure that there was a day that marked his birthday in January. But she was always someone who was kind of frozen in time. And as a widow myself, I, I kind of understood this a tiny, tiny bit that there's this this marker. Do you spend the rest of your life uh, memorializing your lost husband or do you have a life of your own? And sometimes you can do both very well. And I think she did both very well. So let's discuss more about Coretta. <laughs> yes, they had a joint plan from the time that they met in Boston. And uh, I find it uh, funny that most people don't know that she had a dream. She had a dream. 
and uh, I'll share some of it. Her dream was that not some, but all of God's children would have food. And not some, but all of God's children would have decent housing. And not some, but all of God's children would have a guaranteed annual income, keeping up the principles of liberty and grace. And I love to give voice to her dream because that's the woman she was. People don't think about it, but she was older than her husband. He was 39 years old when he was murdered in Memphis, but she was 41. So she was a 41-year-old widow. And because she was older than her husband, she had a perspective on things uh, that she wanted to do and how she wanted to change the world, part of her dream that I just shared. And... And she did that in many ways. She gave light to those things that were important to her, but she joined with her husband's perspective as they both moved their dreams forward. It, it's a beautiful and absolutely inspiring story when people know the story. Excellent. And Nita and I met actually and became fast friends when I was in Paris in 2019 and um, speaking at the Red Wheelbarrow Bookstore in Paris. And since that time, we've stayed in touch, as you see. And um, I've asked her many times, how is France, and in particular Paris, dealing with the pandemic? If you could very quickly tell us, how is life in the pandemic in Paris? Uh, we started our total lockdown on March 17th. And uh, people were told, stay at home, except medical workers and, uh, and really medical workers and law enforcement. And French people, um, from my contact with people I know here, uh, accepted what was said to them because they felt at home they could continue their routines, which included uh, three meals a day which included fresh bread from the bakery. But then the government looked at it and said that the French citizens were a little bit too lax in the way they were following the rules of the lockdown. And by that, I'm saying that when French people decided to have three meals a day, it meant that they would leave home often to go to the grocery store to get that item that might be missing from that gourmet meal. And so the government had to clamp down even more. And so we are now five weeks into our lockdown and we have more restrictions. Uh, before we were told we could leave home to buy groceries or to get exercise, well, people were out on the streets enjoying their physical activities together. The government had to become more strict in the rules of being outside. And that's where we are now. We're five weeks in and so many people with whom I have contact have said things are really more difficult now because we might have seven weeks, we might have 10 weeks of a lockdown and our lockdown is becoming more and more severe. 
It's, it's if, nerve wracking, but people, uh, most people do understand the necessity of it because we don't want to have a second wave of infection and death as we've seen in other places. And you're originally from Texas, correct? Well, Georgia originally, but Texas was my jumping off point to come to Paris. And, and it's what's so interesting, I've met so many African-American expats um, in, in Paris, and the, the tradition of African-Americans in Paris goes back into the 1700s um, mm, with yes. Sally Hemings and the other Hemings, and there are books on this. It's, it's very fascinating. I enjoy being um, African-American in Paris whenever I have the chance to, to go there. But one thing that we're also working on in, for people who are wondering what's going on in the rest of the world, because this self-isolation makes you feel like your world is just your apartment or your home. When the whole world, we share this with the whole world, the whole world mm -hmm. is going through this pandemic. The whole world is practicing some part of social distancing and living in fear of this virus because there is no cure for it right now. There is no vaccine. So we share this globally and we should think of ourselves that way. And this global um, sense of, of holding our breaths globally in trying to get through this and live through this. Um, but one thing that, that Nita Wiggins, um, who's a journalist and teaching journalism in Paris, and I are talking about is a project in which we um, spend this last few minutes of this program um, discussing important issues. And we're going to um, start that off very soon via Zoom, that we will be speaking together um, and then sometimes separately. But we just want to make sure that we're embarking on a way in which we can um, discuss these very important issues from a global perspective as global citizens. Right. It is important to engage ideas and to, to listen to ideas from people who have different experiences and from people who might have the same objective. And even if people don't have the same objectives, I do think that exchanging ideas and being open to others um, Res uh, I don't know, others, the consideration of others and what people want for their lives and in their lives. I'm, I'm happy that I'm going to be able to talk with you and to listen to you and, and understand uh, some perspectives that we share, others that we don't. But that will make conversations very rich, I think, Gloria. I think so, too. And, and we're embarking on this. Um, as a matter of fact, our conversation today is the kickoff and we will be going forward having conversations internationally and, and locally about issues of importance that bring us together. What are our common interests? What are the things that we're fighting for? What are we looking for from the history that can help us better understand our conditions presently and we can plan for a better future for generations unborn and our um, goal is high and filled with aspiration but we come to it with a lot of different um, characteristics and qualities and experiences and I think that she and I Nita Wiggins will um, give you something of importance look for my podcast Law of the Land podcast look for our Zoom um, Keynote speaks. What do we what do we call ourselves now, Nita? Remind me. We were talking about book it list, and uh, you know we're in the creation phase. But I have one promise to make. 
I promise that we will have engaging conversations because, Gloria, whenever you and I are together and we have time to throw ideas out, it's always so wonderful. I feel so supercharged and so informed every time I get to do that at length with you. And so I'm promising that people who check us out are going to get something back. And we look forward to sharing our experiences, our insights, and our you know, willingness to learn new things at whatever age, this lifelong learners. <laughs> we look forward to all of that. Thank you so much for um, joining me, Nita, from Paris, France. Thank you, Gloria. Au revoir. And this is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We are trying so hard to do the best we can under these circumstances. Maybe a couple of engineering glitches here and there, but we are on the case, making it better the best way we can in every aspect. Um, once again, my podcast is Law of the Land. It's on Spotify and Apple. My new book, The African-American Woman, 400 Years of Perseverance, was a finalist for the Indies Forward Award. And I look forward to, um, once again, having Andres Estevez, um, my production assistant, and Michael G., my engineer, help me make Law of the Land the best possible show that I can. And for all of you out there, as always... We may not see each other in person. I'll see you on the radio.